Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome to the second season of Just Sustainability. Thank you for joining me for the second part of my conversation with Taylor Brorby. Last episode, we left off with Taylor and I talking about our common experiences growing up in rural oil towns and how our childhood experiences have affected our work. We learned about how growing up in a small town led Taylor to develop a curiosity about all things that weren't present in his hometown and a love of difference and diversity. In this episode, we'll pick up where Taylor and I left off and listen to the discussion that ensued when I asked Taylor to say more about what he thinks might be some of the biases that have affected his work. You talked about like from when you were doing your first anthology that it revealed that you had assumptions that you didn't realize or that there were blind spots in your biases. I'm just curious, what do you think some of those are, right? And maybe in, not just in the context of the anthology, but just sort of like kind of reflecting on the way you've been thinking about things. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sort of a person who, you know, it's similar to like Leonard Bernstein's personality. I need a lot of love. And I know this, (laughs) I have a lot of, I have a lot of friends and, and, and I enjoy that. Of course, it's that in the context of the anthology as a, you know, so using that as a springboard, I, the priority to me, because I, I felt and knew that my home was getting destroyed, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it, it was like, get this out as soon as possible. And that, that, um, I think that's a real thing during the time in which we live. How do you work quickly in an emergency, in a long-term emergency while still producing the best thing you can? And, you know, I, I stand behind this book, but to be quite blunt, there's, uh, there's one person of color in that 50 person anthology, Clement, it's Linda Hogan, you know, and, major, major missed opportunity from me. Um, not, not having a long open call, you know, we, we had an open call for six months and, you know, you would take the work you can get while I was soliciting from other people. And at the time, um, I had been reading, of course, a lot of people who look like me, white environmental writers, you know, so you're going to see Rick Bass or Bill McKibben in there, you know, or Pam Houston and all doing incredible and important work. And where I'm thinking about myself at this time, that's not indicative of not only my personal relationships that are dear to me, also my own bookshelves. You know, and this was even at the time in which I was working on this. I, I I think that echoes back to this monomaniacal side of my personality. You can really go down a rabbit hole and get tunnel vision. And at the time I wasn't getting, I either wasn't receptive or I wasn't asking to be challenged to break that open and to say, Taylor, are we hearing from you know, it's what I was saying about economics, uh, right. of a thriving economic model that's based in diversity. And so, of course, that book is impoverished because of that. I mean, it's just inherently, that's just true, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I would do it very differently at this point. There's obviously no one I would take out of it. It would be in addition, right. you know, and, and, and I, I think that's, 
that's also some of that sensitivity around extractive economies and sustainability right now, especially I think for white people, we're not mm-hmm. good at being uncomfortable. We're not good at leaning into it necessarily and wanting to hear. I mean, my God, we're living in this time where people think teaching history is controversial. Right, right, right. You know, I mean, in your, uh, in your own part of the world of the Indian boarding schools, yes. you know, and thinking when I was living in uh, Gettysburg, I was just a few miles literally down the road from the Carlisle Indian school that is probably the most atrocious one in uh, in our history in this country. Yes. Uh, as if we want to have a competition of suffering. Uh, but th- those are the things that really are keeping me up now yeah. about who am I listening to and and not that I have power to give permission to say like, oh, now, Clement, you get to speak or things like this, but of using my own work right now as sort of a way of pushing that. And I think my areas currently are more around, um, you know, gay studies and disability, Mm -hmm. but that those are vehicles into, um, there are differences between uh, race, gender identity, uh, ability, of course, yet, I also think there are differences in degree. Mm-hmm. Like I can, I can build empathetic bridges by, to someone who looks different from me because of my own, um, oppression in different areas of my life, you know, mm-hmm. and that it doesn't have to be about me. It has to be about joining that person right. <laughs> and supporting them, you know, and I think that that's where that's some of the work of the past few years I've been doing and being mindful of and realizing uh, there's always more to the story. Yeah. So um, there's two things I want to ask you about. Uh, The first is has to do with the process of that growth. And the second is your current work, but I think I'm going to start with the growth because I think that might lead to the the work. So, right. You talked about too narrow a vision, which I think is true for everybody, right? I don't think this is a uniquely, Taylor problem. I think this is all of us. We tend to think, right, our sort of like cone of the world that we see is the cone of the world that everybody sees. Right, right, really right, right, right. We're not, we, like, we just assume that we're, there's common experience and that common experience is similar to our individual experiences. So how do you broaden that sort of that cone to recognize, uh, right? How did you specifically on your own kind of widen your view? Um, yeah. Yeah. I, oh, God, this is again, I'm back on my reclining chair, you know, saying, Dr. Freud, what am, what am I doing here? But I think, <laughs> you know, I, I've been, I've been obsessing about this so much um, because I'm, you know, I'm preparing for my final read of my next book. And it's been a, a big emotional book that uh, about growing up gay in the American West and extractive mm-hmm. economies. And, and, and to that point of, of, growth, it's kind of like Lydia Yuknovich has this concept about being a misfit, you know, being, Mm -hmm. uh, and I just think 
I never fit in where I came from. It's not like I was this reclusive little boy who like, you know, uh, just sat in his room and read like Soren Kierkegaard or something under like a dark light, you know, with a beret and stuff though. I would have loved to wear a beret as a child, but, but, um, you know, I mean, I think even though at the time I wouldn't have known this, but when you're queer in a, in a, straight heteronormative world uh that is you already don't fit in and you don't see that world reflected to you like i i was the little boy who i knew every lyric to mary poppins you know i obsessively drew jafar from disney's aladdin like what other child does this you know like like my parents had to stop buying me sketchbooks because they were too expensive that my mom just brought home used printing paper from her job because i was just i didn't believe in erasing so if like a line got out whack i would crumble it up and throw it in the corner you know go it won't work but i think that it's it's some type of for me again now other people have different ways of doing this it's some internal hunger of knowing there is a wider world like i i think i had made the connection early on wow movies are made or these things called like disney illustrators exist but they don't exist where i live so where do they exist and i i think being open i mean even going out of our small town the 50 minute drive to bismarck which felt like mm-hmm. mecca maybe a town of sixty thousand. you know it was like bismarck had three or four grocery stores at the time you know that even right. like that sounds so naive but i like i'm just trying to give an adequate picture of like the world i grew up in that was like there was abundance elsewhere um, right. both in what I would see, but also in the people I would see. And, right. and that was not happening in the town I grew up in. And I, I thought instead of thinking my town was right, it also doesn't mean my town was wrong and how people were living. But I thought, again, there's more to the story of existence than what I'm seeing reflected in this town where I'm living, you know? Right art classes were happening in Bismarck. People painted with these things called pastels that felt like a, you know, I might as well have gone to China, you know? I mean, it just felt like this whole other world. And I think, I wonder if it happens very early on that you're either, maybe you're encouraged to be open to that. Other people have parents who put them in piano or, you know, cultivated this. Right. I, I I think my parents simultaneously didn't say no to me, but it's not so much that they even encouraged it, it in, in the sense of like, we think you should take an art class, Taylor. I just somehow knew to ask for one. Right. And then they would, they would put me in one. My parents sacrificed a lot, but uh, I think if you're inherently curious, it should create an openness right. because being curious means that you don't have all the answers. And so you have to be, open to other people and hopefully in that openness, less judgmental in a way that closes you off. And I, I, so I think it's been there. It's sort of that perennial discussion. Is it nature and nurture? You know, the conservative in me says, well, it's both, but I actually at base, if you like pinned me down and held like an egg beater to my face, I would say, you know, it's nature. Right. Like I just think at, like when I look at the landscape of classmates I grew up around, you could tell who was curious and who wasn't. 
Right. You know, and I, I think this is displayed very early. You know, my, the, the people in the same class of 22, I grew up with, um, most of the boys played this little game you've heard of probably football. Yes. You know, it's a preconceived, preconceived game with <laughs> preconceived rules, you know, in a preconceived world for them, you know, and for Halloween, most of the boys I grew up with, they would dress up as police officers or maybe ranchers, which means they wore the same clothes they wore every day. Right. Um, they weren't Dracula. They weren't knights in shining armors. They didn't have big wounds and things like this. And, I think that's displayed early, you know, either it's reinforced by the culture you grow up in, Mm -hmm. um, or you're given permission to push beyond it, you know, but I think a lot of those boys, they got really good at catching a ball and crossing a line. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that's kind of, it seemed all there was for them, uh, or maybe all they wanted, or maybe they did want more and they couldn't see ways out of it. I don't know. But it's, yeah. I, I think early on, I was making those evaluations of, I maybe cultivated wanting to be on the outside, or I thought, you know, everyone, all the, all these <clears throat> older dudes with hip problems, or they're reliving <laughs> their glory days because they, you know, scored that winning touchdown, or they hit that infield home run. And right. that's all fine and good. But I thought, you know, if everyone has that here and that's kind of all they have, there have to be these other things worth cultivating that that make for a different story, yeah. a wider life. And I think you could have that life in those places. I just didn't grow up around people who had that life. Right. No, I mean, that really resonates with me, right? So, like, I think for myself, I'm often driven by the sense that, that there's more. Right, that right. whatever it is that I'm encountering, there's more, and I really want to encounter it. And I, I think that's you know that's still happening for me. Thank goodness, you know, it's like I, uh, I come from a part of the world where people consider black pepper spicy. You know, <laughs> that has too much heat. You know, and so I somehow made some some joke on Facebook a few weeks ago about you know getting some hot sauce from Aldi, and it it was like actual hot hot sauce like like right. oh there's some fire there you know and then my friend camille who's just wonderful and lives out in colorado she sent me a message and was like taylor what's your mailing address and i gave it to her and she said i'm gonna work on your little white boy palette you know and she <laughs> sent me you know like five or six bottles of incredible hot sauce and like because as people know who are more enlightened than me, you can have flavor without <laughs> burning your taste buds, you know? And so, you know, one of these hot sauce, I recommend this to all your listeners, is green belly hot sauce made in Boulder, Colorado from okay. this Guatemalan family. The main ingredient is cilantro and there's a little habanero in it. So there's heat. Mm-hmm. I have it every morning with my eggs, but it, but it's that sort of thing. It, it, it's maybe a silly story or an example but I think it, it kind of reinforces what we're saying is I could easily have said, Camille, don't do this. I'm not going to like any of this. But right. it, it's sort of that thing of what you had brought up. We we have one life to experience. And it's kind of, um, you know, one of my heroes. I haven't seen the latest movie with a very tragic end is Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. I just feel that my romantic notion of him and i don't want to misportray him is it seemed so incredibly open to the world yes and maybe that's a very risky way to live i i feel that 
my God, I know what the alternative is. Yes. Because I think that's that's proven by my part of the world. North Dakota always ranks number one for binge drinking. Yeah. And I think there has to be some deep cultural sadness in places that are predicated on destruction. Yeah. Even if it grows in you some sense of pride in the work you're doing, you inherently have to know ripping fragile prairie soil does not benefit the world. Yeah. Uh, it in fact is destroying the very thing you, you claim to profess, you know, and we're all hypocrites like that. I'm not mm -hmm. trying to cast stones in that way. It, it's that the systems we have invented are not good enough. No. And so it, it's that idea of what Bill Holm, the late poet who lived near where you live, um, mm -hmm. who taught down in Marshall, Minnesota, he'd say, uh, we have to work harder and think harder. Yes. And, and I think that's it, you know, and it, it's, uh, that's the work I want to be doing. It's not even so much that I have the answers. It's kind of like I'm stumbling through this cave with my little lantern and saying, Clement, look, look over here. Like, what do we think about that? Or maybe if we go over here and look at that, it's trying to shed a little light to get a larger sense of what we're in and maybe what we could be doing better. After discussing biases and their impact, Taylor and I changed gears in regards to our conversation. More specifically, I asked him about the strategies that he employs to write in a manner that resonates with readers who are very different from him. Here's that conversation. So, in many ways, I, when I read your work, I, I feel like you're like a modern-day Mark Twain, right? Somehow telling the every man's story. And I always find it fascinating that it's you doing that because, right, like there's many, right, so like just compare, like, I always, I feel myself very much in your experience when I read your work, despite the fact that, right, like, you grew up uh, a white kid in, like, rural United States. Uh, as mm -hmm. a queer person, I grew up as a straight person, not white, in Canada, right? Like, right. Like, very, I, I think, like, kind of, in many ways, very distant. But I see, right, like, I, I see commonality in the, in the way you think of the world. And so I kind of want to, like, dig into that, right? Think about, like, how do you approach that work of like telling that every man story from a really unique perspective, right? Where a person who shares like um, very few common identities with you feels commonality, a lot of commonality. Well, and I think, you know, this is maybe a little like uh, purple, you know, and I don't want to like all of a sudden come across as one of these people who's liable to say unconsciously, like, all lives matter. It's more that <laughs> it, 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 it's that like at base, cause I have to believe this is like, you are a human mm -hmm. who is open to the world. Therefore you also have probably felt pain at some point right. or joy or, you know, discrimination or these things. And I, it, it's the thing we say in, in the writing world is that uh, in the particular resides the universal right. and that if you crack that walnut, open uh hopefully there's i mean why does ocean vong's work resonate with me ocean <laughs> vong doesn't look like me does not have a history like me i mean we share being queer you know but that only gets you so far you know <laughs> and it, it, it's i think part of what i almost find is that reading people who are so different from see here's how to say it seemingly different from me actually proves the rule that we all share a lot in common. Mm. And because we know what pain is, we know what joy is, we know what losing loved ones is. Mm. And if, uh, 
if I can sort of project certain things um, of my own experience onto wider social or systemic issues, Mm -hmm. maybe there are vehicles to help others have permission to do that. You know, because it's not like I'm um, this little uh, enlightened wizard in my (laughs) apartment that I, you know, I mean, I didn't know people were still writing books when I went to college. I mean, that sounds so silly to say. I mean, we read Toni Morrison in high school and and Tim O'Brien and I, I must have known they existed. And I, of course, knew who Stephen King was because my sister was reading him but but i i really am genuine about this of like not knowing that literature was still being written because everybody i read was dead you know i mean what a sad thing but then sophomore year of college in my prentice hall anthology on page 186 we read this short little story called the red convertible by this woman named louise erdrick Mm -hmm. And it was the first time I could remember seeing a birth date listed right. with an M dash without a death date. Right. And I thought, huh. And then I read her bio and it turns out she's from my home state. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my God, people where I'm from can write stories. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, you know, she's pretty good. Last I heard, she like just won a Pulitzer, <laughs> you know, like, but it's, it, it, it's one of those things you have like those, uh, knucklehead moments. Yeah. And I guess I'm just too naive where I go, well, why don't I try it? You know, and then if by me trying helps illuminate something for someone else, because my, my real goal is to get other people doing it right. because I, I think that's how we're living in impoverished times. And I think that's part of it's so kind and generous uh, of you to say to sort of, pick up on these parallels with Twain, who is very dear to me. And I Mm -hmm. sometimes worry we're kind of losing him in, um, I guess I do believe in a canon of great writers, but that that canon should be varied and and diverse. Of course, it's not, it's not only Edmund Lee Dickinson and, and, and Mark Twain and Walt Whitman, it's Jamaica Kincaid, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's Nancy Mayers, who's a, a disabled woman. Um, but Twain was so good. I mean, people think of Twain in terms of humor, which of course is there. Mm-hmm. And I love his commencement speech is one of my favorite things in existence. It's about four pages long. You have to go into a room and close the door because people think you're going mad. <laughs> you know, like he says, you should hit your grandma over the head with a brick, you know, or something. I mean, it's yeah. just this insane sort of silliness. But, but there's the real, um, he's deeply disturbed by the United States yeah. and the empire yes. and the destruction of it and, and race relations. And even that term just makes me like, Oh God, that feels like <laughs> low fat ranch dressing. <laughs> it's, no one wants it. Race relations. What does that mean? Right. You know, but that to explore the problems of oppression, I think is bedrock in Twain's work. Yes. And maybe one of those vehicles is through humor. Now I, I, I think I'm humorous in person. Being humorous on the page is exceedingly difficult, as we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think exploring those notions that you're pointing out of if I'm if I'm exploring deeply a place that means a lot to me, mm. it might not be the place you're from. You might never have been to my place, but it might resonate in such a way 
that you go, I've had those feelings before. And I think that's why, I mean, we are a story driven culture, you know, whether, you know, people love to shit on people younger than me about, Oh, they're addicted to their phones and stuff. But as my good buddy, Josh says, yeah, our cell phones are now our little campfires Mm -hmm. like that. Like, and we, we told stories around camp. We still tell stories around campfires, you know, but that, why are people addicted to Instagram and Facebook? They're looking for stories. It might be very surface. It might be skimming. And, but that I feel is a way to tap into something deeper because, um, I, I just at base, like stories are food as Brian Doyle said, the late Brian Doyle, they are food for us. And, uh, how does that bond come up? I think it's through that human realm of emotion. Mm -hmm. And being very vulnerable in our work of saying, Clement, this place means a lot to me. It's getting destroyed. And I I don't even know what to do about it other than to give voice to its destruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and maybe through that, we'll get more people uh, around this campfire um, to help solve it. I think this might be a good place to end this episode. As a brief review, on this episode, Taylor and I spoke about how our biases affect our work and the strategies that he employs to craft stories that resonate with broad audiences. Some of the key points that resonate with me are, one, that it's important to be mindful of whose voices are being amplified by one's work, and how one's biases affects one's choices about the content of one's work. And two, how particular narratives, or narratives from particular perspectives, can have broad impact because of shared humanity. Please join me again in the next episode of Just Sustainability, when we'll listen to the third part of the conversation uh, between Taylor Borby and I. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.